Hey everybody, Christianity 101, episode number three. Uh, we are going to be continuing through the disciplines of the early church, and we're using as our source text Acts 2.42. Before you turn there, I would recommend that you open up Instagram, go to the Christianity 101 podcast Instagram account, and you can follow along with this teaching with episode three. Sorry, I'm just laughing because... It's funny what you said. But hey, before you open the Bible, open Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least the Instagram that they'll turn to uh, will have uh, verses and things on it. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time. <laughs> but so Acts 2.42, that's our anchor verse for these two episodes that we've been doing. Um, in our last episode, we covered the first two. And Acts 2.42 says this, and I'll read it real quickly. It says, They do- devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And in the last episode, the previous episode, we covered the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, which was talking about the things that the, that Jesus had initially started to teach them in the end of the Gospels before he ascended up into heaven. And then as the books of the Bible were developed and the apostles were beginning to write letters to the church, they would share those letters, and that, that would be the beginning of the apostles' teachings and straightening out doctrine um, for the early church. And then fellowship, which was the second of the two, first two, was just really um, clinging together as a family of believers, brothers and sisters that uh, call on God and um, serve one another and take care of one another. And it, fa- it says, in fact, that many of the people in the church, in the early church, in, in the book of Acts in particular, were facing great persecution, and they were actually um, selling their goods and, and providing for the needs of other people um, as they had needs. It wasn't like communism, as some people would suppose. It was really just as people had needs. And if you want to read a really crazy story about something like that, there's a great story in Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 9, uh, which talks about an individual that um, that sold something, lied to the Holy Spirit, and then was <laughs> slain. <laughs> so, But we're going to, in this episode, we're going to look at the last two, which are the breaking of bread and prayer, because it says they devoted themselves to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, or apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. So let's start with breaking of bread. Um, The breaking of bread is a term that was used and it became synonymous with what we would know as communion. And communion is the, um, and if you're new to Christianity or you haven't been into a church, um, some churches do it every week, some churches do it once a month, some churches do it um, just randomly. They don't ever really have a schedule for it. But in modern day, communion service that you would experience in a church today would consist of matzah bread and and grape juice or wine. But the breaking of bread here, uh, typically historically, was at the end of a, a family meal that they would have together. So they would gather together and they would study the Bible, they'd pray for one another, they'd pray to the Lord, and then they would have a big meal together. And it was very common, and uh, which is really interesting because Christianity surrounds itself around food so much, mm-hmm. you know, but um, it it that breaking of bread, the family meal, as the churches would grow, it would be a lot harder to do a big meal at the end. They actually called them love feasts. That's what they were called. Paul references those too in, in the New Testament later on. He talks about the impatience of their love feasts, so you don't wait for one another when you're right. taking communion and stuff. But um, 
it became more of just the matzah bread and the wine. And the reason that that happened was because the communion was directly connected with the Passover feast. And um, so um, the Passover feast was one of the five feasts that were required of Jews. And the night that Christ was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And um, and so when he was celebrating the Passover, it would there was a couple things that were uniquely connected to the Passover feast. In particular, you had usually lamb, matzah bread, and wine. And so that's where we get the bread and the wine. And the lamb is unnece- will become unnecessary because Jesus will actually become, take the place of the lamb in the feast. But I just want to read out of Exodus chapter 12 to you guys real quick. It says in verse 12 of Exodus 12 through 14, it says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, the blood of will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So I should probably give some context for this (laughs) these couple verses to help out. So uh, the the big picture is, is that God was rescuing the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. They had been there for 400 years. And it started off really well for them. Um, in fact, they enjoyed great prosperity for many, many years. But once Joseph died, and he was the the second in command of of Egypt, he was also a Jew who was who he had rescued his family. And once Joseph died, the Pharaoh that rose up after him, they did not respect the Jewish people in the same way. And so. Because uh, Joseph had given them while they were in captivity the promise, you know, the best land in Goshen, and they had flocks, and they had really become very prosperous. They had multiplied, they had grown as a people within the nation of Israel of Egypt, and um, the pharaohs began to recognize this, and they became a little bit afraid of that they would might take over the entire nation, so they forced them into slavery, and so they cried out to God after a period of time. God hears their cry, and He raises up Moses to come and to set, you know, to, to lead them out of slavery from Egypt. And there's a series of plagues that are inflicted on Egypt because the Pharaoh refuses to let them go. And so it's sort of the standoff, you know, of mm-hmm. between Moses and Egypt or Aaron and Egypt. <clears throat> and um, the last straw, if you will, is when God commands the people of Israel to put take a lamb slaughter the lamb, take the blood of that lamb with a hyssop branch and put a little bit on the doorposts on the top and on the sides of the doorpost. And then they're to cook up that lamb in a certain way so that it will um, it will, it, it will meet the requirements that God had. And it had, even the lamb that they selected had to be a certain way uh, in purity and no defects and all of that. And then God was going to send the angel of the Lord through Egypt to slay the firstborn of animals and men. And if he saw the blood on the doorposts of the house, he would pass over that house. So the judgment of God would pass over that house because of the blood. And so this Passover, you know, this Passover situation, when they finally get set free, 
God tells Moses to tell them that once a year they're to have a feast in remembrance of what he did to deliver them from Egypt. And that feast was involved the, the matzah bread, the wine, and the lamb. And so that's kind of the, the big story mm-hmm. of it. And, <clears throat> and so when you get to the New Testament and the last night of Jesus' life before he's going to be arrested, he's celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. And um, it tells us in the scriptures that he drank, there was a, the, the Passover meal would require four cups of drinking. And though each cup had a little bit of wine in it, it in the Passover meal that Jesus took with them, he literally um, only drinks out of two of the cups. And so it's interesting. Actually, he drinks out of one of the cups, and then he says he will drink the fourth cup with them anew in his kingdom. And we'll go. We'll get into that in a minute. But there's a lot of confusion about about communion in particular. Um, for instance, Jesus. Uh, implemented the communion, and he took the bread and the last at the Last Supper, and he broke the bread. Now, the, you say you break, they break it because it was matzah, and, and the reason it was matzah is because it it was bread without yeast, and that was what they were commanded to cook um, w- when they were in Egypt in slavery, and the bread was symbolic of Christ's flesh, his body that would be given for the sins of the world. And what's interesting is it the bread had no yeast in it. And yeast is a symbol of sin in the Bible. So oftentimes when you see references of yeast mentioned in scripture, it's connected to a sinful behavior, a sinful activity, or just sin in general. And the body of Christ would be without yeast. So he was a sinless he was giving his body as a perfect sacrifice because he was sinless. He was without sin. There was no yeast. And and so his body was given um, as that offering. And then it says that his he raised the cup and he he said, drink this. This is the blood of the new covenant. And and so he the the wine would be symbolic of his blood that would be poured out, that would be cleansing for all the sin that would remain on us. And so there would be this washing of 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 the blood over a sinful person. It sounds gory. It sounds like a horror story. Really, it's horrific for God because Jesus experienced all of this pain and sacrifice in, cruci- in the crucifixion. But his blood poured out for us so that we could be cleansed of all unrighteousness and be redeemed um, to God. And scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so... We know that his blood had to pour out, but his blood was perfect in that way. And so the wine would be symbolic of the blood, and it's red wine, right? So it's easy to make that connection. But it's all symbolic. And you and I, Rosie, one thing I love about doing this podcast is that we have like little Bible studies before, Mm -hmm. and you were showing me something, and we were talking about some of our, some people that we know, and maybe you listening even, have been taught or have believed that in something that the the very technical theological word is transubstantiation, which is simply this: that um, there's a sect of of people that believe that when they eat the eat the bread and drink the wine, it actually becomes the flesh and the blood of Jesus within them. And this is just simply not true scripturally. 
And you had a great you you had some great points that you want that you were yeah. sharing with me. So <clears throat> to kind of just go I'm just going to say it like this off the bat. If you were if you are currently a Roman Catholic, uh this is probably going to offend you because I'm saying everything the most core tenant of Roman Catholicism is the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is uh, what they call communion. Yeah. So uh, if you have a Roman Catholic background, this may be hard to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the reason that it's all love, you know, people, if you've listened to the other podcast, my family, uh, you know, is all Roman Catholic. My parents both came from Roman Catholic families. My extended family was all Roman Catholic. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not just beating up cat. I have tons of Catholic friends. <laughs> so I just want that yeah. to be said. Um, so I will say that it, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the scriptural basis that they, uh, the Catholics hinge on is uh, the, the wording of uh, the, it would be the Greek, right? Of what the word to eat is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's no way to get around this. <laughs> <laughs> the word, the Greek word, um, I don't have it in front of me, but it it means to physically gnaw on something. It, it does not mean, um, we just have to be, you know, the best way to be charitable to everyone is to, uh, you know, some people will say the Greek doesn't, mean to physically gnaw on something like to chew on it it means to chew on something mentally or you know some other word um it does it it does say to gnaw on something as if you're eating it to absorb it um there's no way to get around that now so you're in you're referencing out of john chapter six we should probably let, let them know that, right? Oh, it's all, in all of the Gospels, it uses the same word. All four of the Gospels? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so um, a common point against that, and th- this is one that stumbled me for many times because there is no other way to go about it, is, is that what the word says? That's what the word says? I don't know. <laughs> a lot of my answer to my well-read Catholic friends is, I don't know. I just know you're not right. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I can't articulate it as much. <laughs> right. And... In John 6 is the only one, um, as far as I maybe, I know Matthew and Mark don't have this part, um, that later on, basically, when Jesus takes the bread, breaks it and says, this is my body that has been shed for you, I do this in remembrance of me, the, you know, the, the wine, it says that there is other people in the, in the building that are witnessing him doing that, mm-hmm. that basically say, you can't say that what you just said. Are you really saying that we have to eat and drink you? And Jesus re- basically rebukes them and says, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then they leave, those people. And uh, it's in uh, <laughs> John six sixty six. <laughs> Ironic uh, is, there. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of this is a stumbling block. Like again, it was a stumbling block for me. So like, let me just to, to clarify real quick. Okay. So Jesus said to them, "You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Yes. Or you'll have no part of me. Right. And then the disciples that were with him 
were confused by this, and the Jews that were listening to him began to argue amongst themselves, saying, how can we eat his flesh? How they, this is, they were really offended by that. Yes. And then it says in 6, chapter 6, verse 66, it says, from that time on that many disciples went back and walked no more with Jesus. Right. So a lot of people left him at him saying those words. Right. And so part of this, the way that this is some trickery, and so we're just laying, again, we're laying out with Orthodox Protestant, little o Orthodox Protestant, how you respond to this. This is, this is vital to understand, especially if you're coming out of a Roman Catholic background, to understand this because so much hinges upon it. The yeah. atonement, like saving Their grace. salvation. Your salvation. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is a very, very big point. Yeah, if you're, if you're forbidden from taking communion or Eucharist at a Catholic church, you are not saved. You are not saved. And yeah. <laughs> I can get into some more about it too. But <clears throat> So basically, this is equated, it says, when many of the disciples went back and left, the reference, like what we had talked about or what you may have heard if you grow up in a church, is that during when Jesus is actually doing that Passover, the, the breaking of bread and the pouring of wine, that only the 12 disciples are with him. That's not true. So during this meal, because it actually says uh, earlier in John um, that right before this meal, all the people, he had just fed all the thousands. So he had built up this, uh, I'll just, this is going to be better than um, how I'd say it. So I'm just going to read this little um, reference. Prior to the statement, which is uh, when Jesus kind of goes back to them, And he says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves. And it's in it's in John 6, 26. So it says prior to this statement, Jesus worldly popularity has been growing. His healing miracles attracted a crowd, his feeding of thousands, which happened again earlier in John 6, inspired an entire mob to come looking for him in Capernaum. With this first line of dialogue, however, Jesus will bring that surge of enthusiasm to a sudden halt. This verse summarizes the entire discussion comprising the rest of chapter 6, communion, all of it. The people are seeking free food, <laughs> not spiritual truth. As soon as Jesus begins to explain that his miracles are only to teach, they lose interest. Christ will describe how material things fade away, but his real purpose is to give people eternal life. This message not only stalled the crowd, it makes them angry. And as a result, almost all of them will turn their backs on Jesus. Um, so that's that. Now, further on, um, Jesus, here's some more things where uh, Jesus in John six sixty three it says, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is at no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Mm-hmm. So again, right, right, right in his words, he, this is again him talking to these people that are like, "You can't say what you just said. I can't believe you said it." He says, "Spirit and life." The words that he's spoken. So he's not talking physically. <laughs> yeah. If they're yeah. actually listening to what he's saying, there, he he lays it all out. Yeah. But for the sake of it, we're gonna, we're going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. 
So much of the angst over Jesus' teaching has come from the physical symbolism he used. After referring to himself as the bread of life, Jesus insists that only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood can find eternal life. Of course, earlier in the conversation, Jesus pointed out that bread from heaven was a person in whom John expected, er, <laughs> in whom God expected people to believe. The idea of his flesh being the bread of life was to extend the analogy of bread in order to include his upcoming sacrificial on the sacrificial death on the cross. Here, Jesus makes a direct statement that his prior words are not meant to be taken literally. In other words, Christ is not actually saying that people need to consume his material flesh or drink his liquid blood. Rather, the point Jesus is making is spiritual. Yeah. True belief in Christ requires a person to take the truth of who Christ is deep inside them. They must fully receive it fully and absolutely. This is where the analogy of food comes in, which has to be taken inside a person to have any effect. Simply seeing, holding, or touching food is not enough. It must be consumed. In the same way, faith in Christ is not the same as intellectual knowledge. Saving faith means receiving Christ in the deepest parts of ourselves. Mm. So just seeing him or holding him or touching him doesn't make you a follower or living by faith. You must consume the message of the gospel entirely into your heart. Yeah, and it's it's interesting there because, uh, again, John is the only book that has this particular point in it. Yeah, but it is interesting that while in when Jesus is talking about that, he he also says there's before the multitude. I'll say this: turn their back on him and leave him. Yeah, he also makes reference to there are some you know <laughs> the people here are going to turn your back on me, and he's talking about Judas as well as the other yeah, group of people. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, because he references further on that he knew who would stay with them and who wouldn't. Right. Even Judas. It literally right. says that. Yeah. And um, so I I want to uh, just go through a quick couple points. Sure, yeah. Some more points. Um, this is an, an interesting uh, point that I never thought about until I was looking for pre- preparing this episode. So if you notice during that during that section – it's the multitudes of people that question Jesus. None of the actual disciples question him. Right. Which is interesting because they would almost be the most offended. You know what I mean? Like they they were Jew, you know, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the laws against cannibalism, you know, like right, yeah. they know that that's really weird for Jesus to say. Yeah. And if they actually meant that, I would assume that some of them may have had like some questions or been like, "Hey Jesus, did you really mean that?" Yeah, there is there there is no, no verses where they, they talk about that. Tying that in, if uh, I, I didn't have the actual verse written down, but during Peter's dream um, with the meat sheet, you know, and, yeah, right. What is that? Uh, it's Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. Yeah. So during that, Peter. Or- 10 possibly. <laughs> it's an X. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I can't X. remember exactly. 8, 9, or 10, somewhere yeah. in there. So Peter actually questions God and is like, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. What, what are you telling me to do here? Right, yeah. So contrast that <laughs> with the disciples talking to Jesus. No one questions it because in the meat sheet dream, there is uh, 
there was, you know, obviously the the bigger analogy, the sim- symbolism of letting the, you know, the Gentiles, the Gentiles in and yeah. living as one. But there is like a direct aspect of it with the food. So Peter knew that there was more than just some symbolism with it, that there was talking about unclean food or whatever. Yeah, because all the food on the meat sheet was stuff that he couldn't eat. Right, right. So obviously, you know, the, the whole point I'm making is they understood one was sim- symbolic. And for them to question, you know, Peter questions God in the dream. He questions yeah. God. Do you not think that they would have <clears throat> said the same thing to Jesus? Like, you know you know what I mean? Yeah. There would have been some sort of questioning or like, hey, I think Jesus, do you really mean what you The saying? disciples did say, it does say in John that they it was a hard saying. Right. It, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? Right. But it, and it also, I mean, the, the but, whole... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. But most of the time when Jesus would say something like that, yeah. they would be confused or whatever, and then right. he would explain to them later. Right. But even in this situation that you're talking about in John chapter 6, at the very end, because everybody leaves them, yeah. and Jesus turns to Peter. And I don't know if you're going to key on this or not, no, but ahead. I just wanted to say, it's in verse 68, it says, Jesus looks at, at, at the 12 and he says, will you go away also? And and then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Yeah. Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so. So they understood. He understands. Yeah. And, and not only that, but, um, oh, and he says, not, you, thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So he, not only does he say you have the words of life, but you are the, the Christ. Life. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, it almost was like a solidifying moment mm-hmm. for them because it seems like a test in some ways. Yeah. Like who's going to stick with them when he gets, when Jesus says the hard stuff. Yeah. And it's so true. I mean, that, that paints a really good picture of who, who are the ones that have stood with him. You know, these other people are just riding his coattails because he's popular. And then, you know, now all of a sudden he actually calls them on some stuff that they have to think about. They, they, leave immediately yeah yeah um and uh, uh another whole point to this and you you have it in your notes too but uh they also understand that like it has to be symbolic because if it's talking about the bread of life or his flesh he hasn't been killed yet <laughs> yeah how can it be broken for you right and you'd be physically eating his flesh but he hasn't done the thing that, that is it, required it's required of it to be that in the first place yeah. it doesn't make sense um it's true and some more i'm just going to read uh um actually before i re- get into some other verses that further just solidify this idea yeah. it is, that it is symbolic um, because there are other things that we can uh, touch on about this but it, it's important to understand also context of uh what a jew was thinking of when they thought the Messiah was there, they were expecting a warlord, you know, a, 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 a king, a worldly king, yeah, a uh, to a conquering king, conquering king. That's the yeah. word I was thinking of. Um, they weren't thinking of a suffering servant, yeah. And these are not words that a king would say. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just this contrast of he starts talking about philosophical things. They're like, this guy's, this guy's crazy. This is not who. He's telling us to eat him like, right. like this can't be our king. So they leave. Right. So it's also you see some of that transcend the difference between uh, the new covenant and the old covenant. Yeah. Old yeah. Covenant. But um, here's a couple of verses from Hebrews. 
just in case. And uh, maybe I'll say this. Moving on from the transubstantiation of the physical, I think we're past that. But the big thing that we had talked about of why this is so important um, and why like, it's so important for Catholics too and to this is why you, we still needed to be doing outreach to Catholics. You know what I mean? Because they have a different understanding. So if you come from a Catholic background, you also understand that you have to partake in the Eucharist in order to be saved. The whole Catholic mass is centered around the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we don't believe that this is a physical thing, because, you know, you might say, well, if one's symbolic and one's not, like, what's the big deal anyways? Yeah. The the big deal is, is that when Catholics go through the uh, ceremony, or for lack there, it is a ceremony. It's like a, a, it's ritual, a, a ritual. Ritual, yeah. Of uh, this, they there's this term for the priest, and every priest that gets ordained uh, has to go through this, and they get called this. It's a title. It's called Alter Christus, which means an alternate Christ. Mm. And this is this is 100% Catholic teaching. It's in their dogmas. This is what they believe, is that when the priest does his ritual, and it's crazy. It is insane. They have to, like, slap their arms 12 times, turn around 11 times, face this way 9 times, say this 15 times. It's this ridiculous ritual Yeah. of, like, all these gestures. Those aren't, those aren't actual what you just said they're not the actual movements like yeah, some of them are it's oh, like really? turn here 15 times say this oh, really? five times look over there 11 times say this 13 times it's like 10 different things that they have to do yeah a certain number of times but yeah one of them is close their arms open their arms like they really do these weird things and all of them have to them they have a spiritual connection of somehow of like so the clo- for instance, like I don't know what the closed arms, open yeah. arms mean, but maybe it means like you were closed off to God. Now your arms are open, so, so you're this open. What's to- funny is that they believe that all of these, whatever the things are, yeah, the motions and the stuff. motions signify what happens. It's like a, <laughs> it's a symbolic representation okay. of Christ's um, feelings and movements and what he experienced from Passover dinner. From the Passover communion until he died. Okay. So they're representing through this the kind of the, the, the kind the, of thing. The life of Christ from Passover right. to cross. Yeah. Right. And so when the priest in this Catholic doctrine, when he pulls up, you know, the thing and makes uh he finishes all those gobbledygook and doing all the hokey pokey and all that stuff. Yeah. They believe that he is able, he has enough <clears throat> power. To call Christ down from heaven. <laughs> so th- that's what they believe, that he has enough power to call Christ down, get him inside this wafer, and now he's in control. So that's why uh, Catholics, like, they, they, they're not even allowed to touch it. They're not allowed to touch the wafer that the priest has to put it in. In their mouth. To, in yeah. their mouth. Yeah. Because if they touch it, then they're messing up. It could send the w- w- wafer. And that's also when they believe this. Is you they worship the wafer mm-hmm. when it's in that you know like they do the sign of the cross when they're passing the, the the thing to one another yeah because to them they're worshiping that piece of bread because that bread is Jesus Christ 
And with that, if you're physically bringing down Jesus to physically die again, they're having a bloody sacrifice again. Right. So that's the point I'm getting at is they do all these things to physically call down God because the priest is so powerful that he can, as soon as he does these magic twists and turns, Jesus has to come down. That's an issue. That's an issue because they do the Eucharist every day. Right. Yeah. Thousands of times every day around the world, they are sacrificing Christ again. Probably millions of times. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So- that's why this is important because yeah. Protestants, we don't believe in re-sacrificing Jesus Christ. That's right. And that's why it has to be symbolic because yeah. if it really is him, then we are killing him again. Or this is the other thing is that the the need for them to renew and keep having the Eucharist is because that's like basically wipes the slate clean for for right. their sins. It's a works-based salvation. And it's only for that set amount of time. That's why they have to keep going to daily mass and getting that yeah. in confessing. Um, because basically they never have any idea. If you're a Catholic, you have no idea. If, if you die right now, if you're going to heaven, you don't know if you're saved. Yeah. Maybe you have some mortal sin that you committed and but you, you haven't, haven't received forgiven. communion. Yeah. You haven't confessed it. That's there's no that's peace the in whole that. reason they do last rites when someone's dying, right? Yeah, and here's the other thing this is where it gets crazy, too, is that the intention of the priest while he's doing the Eucharist mass or whatever, if he do, does it with a not pure intention, anything other than fully pure intention, the Eucharist doesn't matter because <laughs> it's invalid, and you know what. You can never know it because you don't know what the priest is doing. Right. You don't know it's secret sin in his life. Yeah. Yeah, If the priest is a pedophile, (laughs) which is very common, very common, or he's a homosexual, you know, like all these things, if he's in sin, then the Eucharist doesn't even save you anyways. So do you have some verses out of the New Testament about uh, re-sacrificing Christ and all that? What do you have? You don't like me talking about... No, no. I just, I I think your point's been driven home pretty clear there, and I... But I want to know what the New Testament yeah. says about it. So Hebrews 7, 27, 26, and 28 through 28. For it was fitting, indeed fitting, that we should have such a high priest talking about Jesus, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests, the previous priests from the Old Testament, the, um, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all mm-hmm. when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews nine eleven through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hmm. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into holy places. Did I I didn't read this yet, sorry. No. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven himself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, mm-hmm. as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not for his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly for the, since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages <laughs> to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In Hebrews ten, ten through 14, for God's will for us, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me read that. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. (laughs) Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits, not not in a church, not in a wafer, next in God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Perfect. Those are fantastic verses. I don't know how many more times. The the key phrase, once, once and for all. I mean, that's said in like four different times in those verses that you spoke, yeah. that you read. So in context, the belief of the Catholic Church that, that at, when you take the Eucharist and the priest becomes this altar Christos, um, this, you know, alternate Christ, yeah, alternate <laughs> Christ, um, to serve up a wafer that God has inhabited, um, to place on your tongue and then you can partake in that. And it's all, it's all been mystified in, in the eyes of Catholicism because scripture says clearly that <laughs> Christ remains, that he offered himself yeah. to be a final sacrifice mm-hmm. and that because of that, he remains in heaven. Mm-hmm. waiting for his return, his second return, when the Father will, will send him back. And I, I love um, I love those how it talks about once and for all, because what that means for us is if you truly are trusting in Christ, then you have what, what we would call assurance of your salvation. And that's really important because a lot of people question, can yeah. I lose my salvation? Can I lose, can I do something so bad that God will not allow me into heaven <laughs> mm-hmm. and and the only sin that god and we'll we'll probably do a whole series on this but the only sin that god can't forgive is the one that isn't asked and that is rejected in the sense of of rejecting his son mm-hmm. so the person who remains in that blasphemous condition when they die will they don't have their sins forgiven and it's the only one that god can't forgive because it, it's that one that's never never 
brought to him to be forgiven. Right. So it's a person in an unsaved position. That's really awesome. And yeah. I always would say this. I would always say that when Jesus implemented communion on the that very he, – he did the Passover three different times in the Gospels, mm-hmm. but this is the third one before he was arrested and crucified. When he implemented communion, he took the bread. And the question you want to ask is, was the bread Christ's flesh? Mm-hmm. And we would say no because – Christ was with them right there right. in the same way as in John 6 when he says, unless you eat me, eat of me, you will not, you know, have eternal life. And then the other question is, is when we implemented communion, he took the cup of wine. Was that his blood? Like, did he take a, like a needle and pull out some right. blood? No, he didn't. It's, it's, it was the fruit of the vine. And, and again, he was alive and he was with them as you pointed out earlier. So I, I think that's really awesome points. Yeah. And, I think there's enough people that have um, religious backgrounds with Catholicism in particular that this would resonate with them to know that, yeah. So then the the question we have to ask is, well, what's the purpose mm-hmm. of communion? And if, if it doesn't become his true flesh and his true blood, then then what is the purpose? And I would say Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. And the whole purpose of the communion is to remember the body and the blood that was given and poured out for you so that you can have assurance of salvation because of what he did. That um, So it's a, it's a remembering. It's, it's a, literally a remembering of what was done for us. So um, I wanted to point out a couple things real yeah, yeah, quick yeah. from ec- the book of Exodus in reference to the Passover meal. Mm-hmm. And the, we talked about the wine glasses and all. So there's something that we call the four cups of promise from God. And it's found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And this is in what the Lord said. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites, he's speaking to Aaron um, to give a message to them. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so because of these statements, they associate a glass of wine, a cup of wine, with each one of the four statements, and they're these I will statements. So the first one, he says, I will bring you out, and I will bring you out is what they call the cup of sanctification. So when they were taking a, when they're partaking, when the Jews, even today when they practice Passover, um, that when they're celebrating that feast, they'll have the four cups, and the first one is the cup of sanctification, and it's in reference to, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And then the second cup is the cup of deliverance, where he says, I will deliver you, he says, I will free you from being slaves to them. And then the third cup is called the redemption, the cup of redemption. And he says that I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Uh, let's stop right there for just a second. The redeem, the redemption cup, um, this is actually the cup that Jesus rose up and held up and drank from in the communion meal when, you, when you're into the Gospels, when you're looking at the Passover scriptures. And I love what it says there because he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. 
And I want to try and give you a visual picture there for a minute. When you think about Jesus and he was hanging on the cross, what do you picture? Well, his arms were stretched out and they were nailed to the cross. So he's redeeming you with outstretched arm as if not, you know, the image in Exodus is that he's reaching out to Mm -hmm. them, like I'm reaching out to you. And the picture of the cross is he's reaching out to the whole world, not just Israel, but the whole world is being offered salvation to be redeemed. But then he says also with mighty acts of judgment. And a lot of people get confused about this. Uh, It's not just God judging those that are against his children, the Israelites, but it's literally God judging Jesus because he's placing the sins of the world, including the sins from his own people, the Jews, Mm -hmm. upon him, and he's exacting judgment on Christ in our behalf. So it's a mighty act of judgment against sin of the whole world, and this is the sin that Hebrews, you were just reading once and for all, the sins of the past, the sins of the present, and the sins of the future. And we love that because that's the assurance of our eternal security, that our because our sins are forgiven completely, the sins I know and don't know about, the sins I haven't even <clears throat> committed yet are already forgiven by God. That means my salvation is secure because of Him, not because of me. Yeah, and I just want to rub it once more in the in the Catholics. Okay. This is the difference of why you go to a non-Catholic church, and what do you see? You see a cross, right? There's a cross. Yeah, cross is everywhere. And it's empty. Well, it's there, there's nothing on it. W- wait, in a Catholic church? No, in a Protestant, Protestant church. church. Yes, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I it's, missed you. I yeah. Was, yeah. You go to any Protestant church, right? How you can tell it's a Protestant church? It has a cross outside. Yeah. You go to any Catholic church, they wear it around their necks on a. You know, the necklace, everywhere. It's Jesus hanging up on there. Yeah. The and crucifix, the, yeah. Yes, they call it a crucifix. So, again, why do they have Jesus still up there? Because they're constantly <laughs> going through and doing a sacrifice. They're constantly going in and having this constant memory of actually sacrificing him. Yeah. And that's because they believe that they're doing it. So just just the difference in how we view an empty cross because Jesus isn't there anymore. That's right. He did it once, once and for all. He doesn't need to sacrifice himself again and again and again every day. Right. That's why we, we, so just those little differences uh, mean so much in the way of salvation again. But I just wanted to point that out is we, we, we look at the cross and see it's empty because we know God rose. That's right. It's no longer hanging there. That's right. It's an empty cross. It's an empty cross. And an empty tomb. Exactly. So the cup of redemption is found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28. It says, Then he took the cup, this is Jesus, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So that third cup, the cup of redemption, with the outstretched arm, the mighty acts of judgment, that was the cup that Jesus lifted up during the Passover feast. And then he tells them, uh, so then there's a fourth cup, which is called the cup of, re- of, of restoration. And 
And that comes out of verse 7 in Exodus where it says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So it's I will take you. And it's this restoring them from a place of captivity to a place of freedom and a place of their own. Mm-hmm. And so he's restoring them to the promises that he'd given them. Well, when it came to that cup during the Passover meal, Matthew 26, verse 29, this is what Jesus says in reference to it. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew in my Father's house with you in my Father's kingdom. So he's, he says he withholds from drinking from the fourth cup. And I believe that that fourth cup is representative of the rapture, mm-hmm. that he's going to one day, he's going to do this heavenly flyover. He's, that's not his second coming. Right. It's He's going to blow the trumpet, and he will gather the elect from all four corners of the earth. The dead who have were in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will meet them in the air, and we will receive our glorified bodies. And then we will be taken into his kingdom for a heavenly banquet, a heavenly feast. And that's what Jesus was referencing in Matthew 26, 29. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And I just, Amen. I love that because not only do we get to be raptured, which it's not a pie in the sky belief, it's literally displayed all throughout scripture. Yeah. Um, but it's a, and it is a mystery. But we also get to celebrate when we get there. Mm-hmm. Dude, we're going to be drinking that heavenly new wine, baby. It's <laughs> going to be great. And you know what, Rosie? You've been you've been sober for like, what, 12 years now? Almost 13. Almost 13. And like, you're going to finally get some that wine, and it ain't going to have the same effect on no, you. No, <laughs> exactly. I was just thinking that. Yeah. And you could probably get addicted to that wine. It's okay. <laughs> but um, so the transformation of... The Last Supper or the Lord's Supper to communion was to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus becoming the Passover lamb. So he's the lamb, so there's no need for lamb. His blood is the wine and his body is the bread. And so we have this communion meal where we we remember what he's done for us. And it's really amazing because this carries through into into the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So this is what he was taught by Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night he he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's a really awesome um, remembrance that we're proclaiming what was done for us. His death was a sacrifice for us. And just to make a a, a different point, ragging on the Catholics because of this thing. Yeah. This, at the same point, we've said multiple times, maybe not in this series, but at the same point, there is no longer all the Passover feasts where both remembrance of what God had done to them just recently, yeah, you know, like the first couple, but there's also, from the beginning, like you pointed out, those four cups are constantly looking 
to the new save, the perfect, you know, sacrifice. Yeah. So when Jesus did this and said it is finished once and for all, and then he died on the cross and rose again, there is no need to sacrifice or <laughs> to sacrifice to celebrate the Passover either. Like it was fulfilled. He was also saying at the same time, he wanted because he's talking to Jews. Yeah. His people. Yeah. He's saying there's no need for this anymore. He I've come, I've fulfilled all this. Yeah. And he was trying to put an end to um letting them know. Like yeah, it, the it was fulfilled. The Passover was an event that occurred that pointed to ultimate like spiritual and physical rescue. Right. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled even the elements of the Passover feast, except for the one cup that's still remaining. Right. We're hanging on in that cup of restoration, yeah. which is going to be fun. Right. So there is one thing I do want to say about communion because um, the Apostle Paul also gets into a warning. He issues a small warning to anyone who takes communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 27 through 31, I'll read it. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So Paul is basically giving a warning. Now remember, he had just said earlier that I heard from the Lord and I'm giving it to you, you know, in reference to the communion. He's like, hey, I what I heard from the Lord, I'm passing it on to you. He's like, take communion in remembrance of, of what he's done, that the new covenant is established. It's been, it's actually confirmed with the blood. Um, and then he's also that my, you know, we do this in remembrance. And then he says, then he goes on to say that there's an unworthy manner that someone can take communion. And this is someone who is actually basically, they're taking the communion meal, they're, they're taking the bread and the wine, and they're not soberly examining the cost that it was for God, that his righteous, perfect son was given as a sacrifice for their personal sin. So it would be as if I disregarded the work of the cross on my behalf. It was done for me uh, and just took it lightly and realized, like, so there's a phrase that a lot of people um, would like to to claim on people that were like you were just talking about how we don't have to celebrate the feasts, right? We don't have to do it. You can if you want, but you don't have to. And that is the this phrase of antinomianism. And it's basically free grace. In other words, well, I know God's going to forgive me, so why should I worry about it? I'll just live any way I want because God's going to forgive me anyway. Well, there's a fine line because the whole purpose of the idea of remembering what was done for you is to bring you back to a sober mind of the fact that you need it. You need forgiveness because of your actions, because of your moral behavior, because of your beliefs. You know, so um, in, in you have to be rescued from that. And because of that, it costs God greatly by giving his son. And so Paul talks about the people that have been practicing this and like in an unworthy manner. He says that some of them have gotten sick. Some He says, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
And the weak part is like, um, imagine someone whose faith is weak. Like they just kind of flow with the, go with the flow. They don't really stand up. Um, this happens because they begin to minimize the work of the cross. If you enlarge that, you know, as you and I were talking before we recorded, you're like, if your God's so little, you can jump out of his hand and you need a bigger God. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you need to enlarge what God's done for you and the, um, the enormity of the cost for you. And that will bring you back down to earth a little bit. Yeah. It'll cause you to want to live in a way that will please him. Paul goes on to say, eventually, he says, uh, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. In other words, his lavish grace upon our lives, the cost of Jesus, his kindness to bring us in will cause us to repent when we recognize that what we've been done for us. Yeah, and I think that key point is like the the kindness, because if you if you never, and it says right here, um, when we're, uh, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Yeah. And that's like, uh, that, that that standpoint if we're just view if we're just oh everything's good then everything's good and you know we can totally not recognize what the cross did for us if you're just minimizing everything yeah is that kindness well you're the you're like the um what's the phrase like you're gonna be you're gonna grade yourself on a curve right yeah yeah (laughs) we judge yourself right yeah or it's it's, it's like that bad right it, it, the, the same kind of thing it's like uh being born on third base and then thinking you uh you know hit a triple right you know <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. how it is if you're just like because god's brought you all these ways and if you just never acknowledge him and at the same time i love um paul talks about all of his good works are dirty rags that's right and um when i really started thinking about that like really visualizing it because I'm not going to go into this, but the key, the word dirty rags is not just dirty rags. Right, yeah. There's something a lot grosser into it. You can look into that if you care. But just that visual of like every time, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens enough times when I'm like seriously thinking about a sin or if I'm acting out in something, yeah, lying and feeling guilty about it. Sometimes that image of just me throwing a dirty rag onto you know yeah. Jesus. I visualize that, and I feel ridiculously convicted. Yeah, and um, I mean it, it's again coming to a place of I. I, I want to say I think I'm always going to sin, so I'm never going to not need that as a remembrance. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that that will never not help. Um, but you know, going through the day, want to be in a place where. Uh, I don't have to feel so guilty. And that's why we try to emulate Christ and do what yeah. he did. Um, there's, but if, there's, you're, if you're not feeling guilty about some sins, <laughs> you may want to look at some stuff. Yeah. Examine yourself before you take communion next yeah, time. absolutely. And the other thing, too, is, like, I think um, there's a changed life. Like, mm. it, it's a life that wants to um, please God. Yeah. And, and that's all he wants from us anyways. But... He says here that some are sick, some are weak, some are sick, and some have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep is a euphemism for they die. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of people forget that when we sin in this world, there are consequences to sin. And, you know, as you know very uh, well, that there are some sins that we do that are so destructive that um, they actually cause us to die. 
mm-hmm. you know, um, people with drug overdoses or addictions of any kind, you know, they can, when they go without being challenged and, and yeah. <laughs> helped, then they can kill a person, you know, very easily. And I think that's similar to what's happening here. He's talking about some, some people have in such an unworthy manner, they've literally, they've, they've just disregarded um, they've minimized the work of the cross, and God kind of lets them go on their way. It doesn't mean that they're not going to make it to heaven, because mm. Paul goes into that too. And that's another thing is maybe we could do an entire um, 101 podcast episode just about assurance of salvation. Yeah, <laughs> we um, should. But and, and we probably need to. But Paul issues that warning that we need to do some self-examination every time we take communion and um, and just you know have a sober understanding in our spirit of what was given for us so that we take it in a worthy manner and we should deal with the issues of our lives that have sin. We should, you know, prepare when we take communion, take a minute, you know, our, the church that I attend, they do it every week. And, um, and so because it's done every Sunday, it can get to be a little bit, um, routine. Mm -hmm. And when things become routine, they can lose their significance. And so sometimes I won't actually take it. Um, not because I don't want to enjoy remembering the sacrifice, but sometimes I just want to um, allow some space there. So when I do take it again, it's a little bit more Mm -hmm. um, personal for me. And I just always take a minute and my kids don't always understand it, but I sit there just, I hold, I hold the elements in my hand and I just am thanking the Lord and just kind of in my mind, I'm thinking, Lord, is there anything right now that you, I'm sure there's anything you could bring up, but is there anything particular you want me to just for, you know ask forgiveness for? And sometimes it'll bring something up that, like earlier in the week, you mm-hmm. know. And um, and I think that's the heart that God's after for His people. Now, <clears throat> I, I want to say another thing just real quickly. Sure. Much in the same way of because uh, maybe we're beating a little bit too much, not not too much, but on this of remembering sin and you know all these times we fall short remember what the cross did at the same time you know do this in remembrance of a celebration yeah like that is it too is we can beat ourselves up and we should have a healthy conscience of i'm not saying i'm not minimizing questioning yourself questioning your motives you know listening to the holy spirit when it's grieved like really examining yourself Mm -hmm. but at the same time you know be joyous that, you know, Jesus, the cross is empty. That's Jesus right. did overcome. We are saved. And also, you know, give thanks during that. Yeah. Is, that's important too. I don't want to minimize Yeah, that's yeah, really good. The, there's, it's not all gloom and doom, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, we have, the greatest thing is that we get to be with him because he, he died on the cross for our sins. Amen. We are forgiven. We can be with God forever and we will be. That's right. That's so. good. That's a great point. Yeah, that, yeah, that's good. That's and I like. I think that's a good place for us to move on to keeping yeah, that in our mind. Yeah. So communion is an ordinance that was instructed by Jesus in the church. There's two ordinances in the church, and I want to touch on the second ordinance before we move on to the last of the four. You know, the four di- disciplines, mm-hmm. and that is this idea of baptism. Um, you know, God, Jesus instructed in Matthew chapter 28, he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
And um, and so Jesus instructed the church, the disciples, and then what would become the church, uh, to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. And then when they make disciples, that we one of the things that we would do would be baptizing them. And in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that is water baptism. What he is, is he he is talking about, and um, I was just actually reading in Luke chapter sixteen this morning, and it's really interesting because Jesus is referencing the new covenant, and he said that he the law was preached up until John, and then John began to preach the coming of the kingdom, mm-hmm. and so uh, John being John the Baptist, and the coronation of the kingdom of God. Uh, entering into planet Earth and and the kind of the closing out of the old and the be- opening up of the new was the baptism of Jesus himself mm-hmm. and that Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, when he came up out of the water, we see a beautiful picture of the Trinity because you see Jesus in physical form as a man you see the Holy Spirit like a dove ascending and descending upon him, or descending and ascending up and down. And then you hear the voice from heaven of the heavenly of his Father saying, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased. And um, and so you have a, tri- a, tr- a triune picture of God there, the Spirit, the Father's voice, and Jesus himself. Um, so if you ever need a picture of the Trinity, that's a great place to go to look at it. Yeah. But that was the kickoff to the new covenant. And so there are two baptisms that are represented in or described in the New Testament. One is a water baptism and the other is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're only going to talk about the water, the you know, the water, the baptism of by water. And in water baptism, a believer confesses to the church that they belong to the Lord. They're saying, I identify as a believer. I am following Christ. And so when a believer is getting baptized, someone gets baptized, it's after they've accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior, or they've committed their life to him and trusting in him. And they're identifying themselves as a member of the church of God, which is the body of believers. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a different baptism. That's where God witnesses that that person belongs to him. Mm -hmm. So one is the person is saying, I belong to God. The other is God saying, he belongs to me. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is God's witness to that the, that the believer belongs to him. And there's a whole series of things that, that prove that and show that, and which we'll get into in a different episode, but let's get back into the water. So in Romans chapter six, the apostle Paul says this, He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. 
Um, and then, Amen. yeah, <laughs> it's a great verse. And then two other ones, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, having been buried with him in, bapti- in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So there's this, another one of those symbolic things that is happening. A, a person trust in Jesus, and then he is water baptized. And in that word in the Greek is baptismo, and it means to fully submerge. So I know that some traditions will sprinkle people with baptism, you know, as baptism, like they'll christen them or whatever. Um, and, and also some traditions will infant baptize. Um, I think that there's a lot of room for debate about this in particular, but I personally land on, and this is Turner, not anything, I land on that a a person should be baptized only and when they are of able mind to fully trust in the Lord on their own Mm. without any coercion or it's a decision on their own that they make. Um, And then they should be able to be baptized. I also believe that a person should be fully submerged. And uh, and if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good <laughs> enough for us, right? Yeah. Now, I will say this. I've baptized literally hundreds of people. I have. And I've had the privilege of it. And sometimes you get a person who is phobic. Yeah. And they have death fear of water. And that person, I am more than willing to take and put some water, you know, like I'll walk them out to their knees or, you know, knee depth or whatever and put some water over their head and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But typically when you take a person and you dunk them backwards into the water, it's symbolic of, and the image that the picture it paints is that of someone going into the grave and then coming back up out of the water Right. As in a resurrected condition and resurrected state, and this is, and also the water is cleansing, right? It's new mm-hmm. life, and it's it's all about resurrection, and so it's this big. It, there's this tremendous natural symbolism of someone dying, being washed and cleansed, and then r- risen back up into new life, and everything that's old is at the bottom of that mm-hmm. lake or pool or wherever it is that you're being baptized, and the new is what emerges up out of it in this resurrected condition. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He, you know, he he died on the cross, took sin. He was buried in the tomb for three days. We only dunk you. We don't hold you down for three days. <laughs> so the correlation isn't one for one. Uh, but then he rose from the dead, and he was pure, and the sins were all destroyed. Right. And he reigned victorious over them, took taking back the keys of death and hell, mm-hmm. death and Hades. So... I just have a kind of a question sure. to pose to you since um, before we go into the fourth one. Yeah, yeah. Because this, just, just to kind of tie it up, okay, someone yeah. might be wondering this. So we have uh, the sacrament or communion. Okay. So I'm, 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 I've been in a whole uh, Catholic mode all day going against them. You have uh, communion, you have baptism. Do any, are any of those needed for salvation like great question someone might be listening to this and go this is a kind of a real fear that i think someone may have that's listening to this is i haven't been to a church where i've been able to get 
communion for the first time. Yeah. Um, and maybe I, maybe you're listening and you found us during COVID, all that stuff. And you haven't been able to go to a church that you've been baptized or you're, you're figuring everything out and there's no church. You know. Yeah. Are these needed? Needed. Like if you die without having had um, communion and never being baptized, are you going to go to hell? Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, you, you um, will not go to hell for that. The only requirement for heaven is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's it. That's the only requirement. You don't have to take communion. You don't have to be baptized. You get to. Right. You get to do those things. Um, and the perfect example of this, who did neither, is the thief on the mm. cross right next to Jesus. So many of you know that when Jesus died on the cross, there were there were three of them on the hillside, Jesus being one, and then on to his left was a criminal, and his, to his right was a criminal. One of the criminals mocked him and made fun of him and challenged him. Oh, if you're God, you should jump down. Why are you staying up here if you're God, you know? Yeah. The other one was convicted, and he said, Son of man, when you enter into your kingdom, remember me. <laughs> I just got goosebumps, dude. Did you see me? <laughs> no, yeah, I did see yeah. you. He said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and he said, surely I tell you, you will, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm. And that man neither had communion nor was he baptized. I mean, it would be quite impossible being nailed to a cross. <laughs> yeah. so. But that's the truth. That That's just a really good case point that um, – that God doesn't require that for salvation. And and it's good. I mean, that's a great question. And some some, you know, like the Catholics, they if they believe if you have not taken this the Eucharist, you and you die, you are in an unsaved position yeah. with God. And we do not believe that. We believe that our our salvation is we have assurance in our salvation as you read all those wonderful Hebrew verses that talk about once and for all so yeah that's a great question so um so communion is an ordinance by god he said do this often in remembrance of me and then baptism is an ordinance of god which isn't part of the things that they were practicing although they were doing it yeah. uh, the early church was doing it all the time um because he said go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them so those are the two things that jesus specifically mentioned that we should be doing and now we're going to move into the fourth um, of the of the uh, four disciplines, yeah. yeah, fourth of the four disciplines. So we we covered the breaking of bread. Now we're going to talk about prayer. So the the disciples devoted themselves to prayer, and the best way because we're going kind of long on this. Uh, the best way that I can um, I can show this in an efficient way would be Jesus gave a demonstration of what prayer should be like in Matthew chapter six. And, you know, prayer is, is very simple. It is simply this. It's communicating with God. And the questions that I get a lot of times are, do I have to speak in order to pray? No, you don't have to speak. <laughs> you can think. You can think your prayers. In fact, there's been many times where I've been in line at, like, the DMV or someplace like that, and I've literally been praying in my mind, Lord, please let this person be evaporated <laughs> in front of me you know, or whatever. <laughs> please let this worker work hard or fast. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to say this as kind of a personal thing. I don't like praying out loud. I feel very awkward doing it 
yeah. with other people yeah. around. I'm not a very good prayer <laughs> yeah. out loud. Um, am I going to go to hell for that? I don't like praying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, Rosie. <laughs> I think that's the least of your worries. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, and so here's the thing is God, <laughs> he has the ability to know your thoughts before you know them yourself. So whatever you're thinking, he obviously already knows. So, uh, but prayer is communication with God, and it's in on this earth right now. It's primarily verbally. We, you know, we're commanded in the New Testament to present your request to God and to boldly approach His throne of grace. And there's this um, idea of you are in a living relationship with mm-hmm. a living God, mm-hmm. and so why wouldn't that involve conversation with Him? And um, and he does speak back to that's the yeah. coolest thing about it all is that God does speak back to his people, his children. Um, but in Matthew chapter six, Jesus was speaking to the disciples and they asked him about prayer. And he says, this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debtors, our debts, as so also, sorry, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And um, the, a lot of people are familiar with this prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, right? They call it the Lord's Prayer. And once again, with our traditional Catholic friends, um, this is what they're told to pray, you know, oftentimes. Just go pray the Lord's Prayer or go give Hail Marys, yeah. which is a whole other thing. <laughs> and what's interesting is the very first line is instructive because Jesus says there, this is how you should pray. He doesn't say this is what, what you should, you should pray. pray, right? Yeah. He doesn't say when you pray, this is what you should say. He says when you pray, this is how you should pray. So it's actually a template mm-hmm. of some sort for us to to you know glean from. And if you're new to prayer, I would recommend that you would look to this in Matthew chapter six, verses nine through thirteen, and look at what he's specifically doing in that prayer. So the first thing he does in verses nine and ten, we'll just break it down. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is the focus of that first line? He's focusing on God. So many times people come to prayer and they immediately start to just list off all of the things that they need God to do for them. And I think that that is um, important. Mm -hmm. And I think it's cathartic. I think it's good to be able to just lay everything out to God, you know, get it out of off your heart and out of your mind and put it in more capable hands. But according to here in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying to us in the template of prayer is like, we should start by focusing on God the Father. And there's a great Psalm. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. And so a lot of times when I think of going into the courts or the kingdom of of heaven, you know, entering the realm of the heavenlies in prayer, uh, I want to have praise and thanksgiving. And so initially, I don't want to be coming to God with me. So how does that look? Well, maybe it looks like this. When you start to pray, you just say, you start to list the things that you're thankful for that God's done for you. 
you know, he in in this prayer he says, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your your name is holy." That's what hallowed be your name is. Your name is holy, God. You are righteous. You are true. You are perfect. You are a a wonderful, loving God. A, a pure. A, you are pure in everything you do, and perfect in all your ways. And you lack nothing. And in you is complete sustenance and every every supplied every need that I have is supplied just in your presence and you just start to basically list off the attributes of who God is and his character and then it says your kingdom come your will be done and that is like God I just need more of you <laughs> your kingdom more in my heart your kingdom more in my mind in my spirit and Jesus himself said that the kingdom of God is within the hearts of men. You know, it's it's within you. And so um, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. So it's totally a focus on not on you at all. Mm-hmm. And so I would recommend we start by not focusing on us. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Yeah. The second is verses 11 and 12, where he says, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so now you're beginning to turn that focus from who God is to what you what you have to present to him in your life. Because in particular there, he says, um, give us our daily bread. And what that means, and, and this is really perfect for everything we've been talking about with communion and all of that too. It's like this connection with God, like I'm, I need to feast on the bread of life, you know, give my daily bread. But also it's my provisional needs. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people believe that, <clears throat> well, I, I think a lot of people misunderstand God in the sense that um, he, they think that he will give them everything they want. Right. But he only promises to give us what we need. And that's important to understand. And your daily bread is a reference actually to the book of Exodus when, they, yeah. when the Jews were out in the desert and he would send manna and it was this cake-like substance that would appear from the dew, and they would go and collect, and they were instructed to only collect enough of the manna for the day. Unless it was a Sabbath, and they were supposed to take, on Friday, they were supposed to take a double portion because it would last them until they, because they weren't supposed to work, right? So if they took more than what they needed, maggots would appear in in the manna. If they took just enough, they would be able to eat it, and it would not get, it wouldn't rot. And it's just really interesting how God um, orchestrated it that way. And he says here, he says that give us our daily bread. So what do I need? You know, you're not promised tomorrow anyways. Yeah. So many times we're praying to God and we're like, God, if I don't get this job, you know, right. if I don't end up in this, if I don't end up marrying that, or if I don't, you know, and God's like, you, if you knew what I knew, <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't be praying that right now. Yeah. <laughs> We may not make it to tomorrow. Right. We're not promised tomorrow. Yeah. So, And I just wanted to touch, because this just came to me, which is an interesting, uh, when you're bringing up about the Exodus and the manna, kind of tying it in again in a different way to the um, communion, is Jesus kind of tested in a way, right? Because he's going to mm. say these things to weed out everybody, to, tr- to truly trust him, right? Yeah. In the same way, God didn't – there was obviously excess manna that he created. He gave them more than what they needed yeah. and instructed them. to. So it's just so funny that, like, he didn't just plop down 
5,345 pieces of mana, which are just <laughs> enough for, you know, evenly divided. Every person got three pieces, you know, something like that. Yeah. There's way, there always was more there that they were told not to do. Yeah. Because they trusted, you know, there's that trust aspect. But the same, it's just interesting that he didn't, you know, there's <laughs> obviously more there that he let off. It's just, that's a great point. Testing him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and he did it with quail too. I right. didn't mention that. He yeah. fed him quail. And there was like all these extra quail. Right. In fact, they got sick of the quail. <laughs> I don't understand that. But so, so you first focus on the Lord, then you focus on your needs. And then lastly, in Matthew's first night, verse 13 of Matthew chapter six, he says, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And um, this is a focus on our weaknesses. Because it's directly dealing with sin, because it's lead us not into temptation. If you ever struggle in a sin area of your life, like um, I know, I mean, pornography is a plague on our society today, on our culture. And it's particularly difficult for Christians because they're the only ones who are resisting it. Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and if you are someone who struggles with that, with pornography, like, which is many, many people, I mean, it's a sort of a um, thing that people don't like to talk about, but it's true. And it's okay to pray, God, le- don't lead me into temptation today. Yeah. Like, Lord, avert my eyes. Like, go before me. Like, if there's something that's going to trip me up, I just ask you to not lead me that direction, Lord. Yeah. And and so it's okay to do that. Like, God is telling you to pray that way. Um, and it, And then he says, and deliver us from the evil one. In other words, that's the attacks of Satan. So, yeah. who who's the one who lays the tempting, tra- you know, traps in front of you? Well, that's Satan. Yeah. You know, the evil one. He's going before us, trying to cause us to get entangled in sin, and then we get entangled in sin, and we become this inefficient believer who's not equipped and who's making no impact. And that's his goal. Well, and just to take that a step further. To make you forget about the cross, to make you doubt God. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's it too. Is there, there's been, I'm not proud to say it. There's been prayers where simply I've said, God, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And told I, I'm being completely honest. There's been I, I've not prayed that just once. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know that's the, the, being full of what's going on and forgetting God. Satan loves to do that. Yeah. To just Get us, you know, ultimately questioning God, questioning oldest all, trick in the book. Oldest trick that. in the book, yeah, <laughs> literally, 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 <laughs> it is. So, uh, yeah, yeah, and so prayer is that, and I would say that once again, Matthew six verses nine through thirteen are not how you should pray, but um, not or is how you should pray, but not what you should pray. Look at it as a template, as a design, as a help. Uh, Jesus is not expecting every prayer to look, say, like we're not mimicking that. And um, But as you pray, if you're new to prayer, as you pray, the more that you do it, the easier it becomes, and you will begin to develop a prayer life with God. And there are actually spiritual gifts of prayer mm-hmm. uh, where people are gifted in prayer and intercession and it literally brings life to them when they can serve. Yeah. yeah, they can serve the church by praying for people. And typically those people also have faith. Yeah. So big things, cancer, you know, big, I have a huge debt I need to pay. 
they have it doesn't like bother them. They're like, okay, cool. Let's just ask God. Yeah. And I'll pray for you, and you pray, and we'll pray together. I'll pray in agreement, you know. And um, so there's this this um, prayer life that comes up. But that was what the early church was known for: is they were known for praying one for another and praying to God in public, mm. uh, in private, together, corporately. You know, yeah. um, it was like a thing. In fact, Jesus even said that he would desire that we pray without ceasing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you just pray like every second of every day, but it's your praying throughout your day. Yeah. You're you're literally praying you're in communion with God in prayer throughout the day. Yeah. And so he's with you alongside you. Yeah, can I offer something else that um I stumbled upon this very quick prayer, but it's Absolutely. become one that I've um and for as much for my ortho bros, <laughs> you know, as much as I've just cracked on transubstantiation, I'll give you this one. Sure. It is a very simple, it's called the Jesus Prayer. It's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that, so I love it. It's super easy, quick, succinct. Yeah. And I can, That that's honestly one of the first things that comes up like when I start thinking about sin, it's just, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please have mercy on me. You know, it, it doesn't have to be that exact thing, but just have mercy on me when I sin. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I like saying that. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. That's awesome. So. Cool. Well, those are the four disciplines. We broke it up into two episodes. So the the apostles' teachings, the apostles' doctrines were um, the apostles' teachings, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That's what the early church was devoted to. Um, so next week, or next episode, I should say, <laughs> I don't know when we're going to record the next one, but the next episode, um, it should be about what we call the dunamis, or the power, mm. which is how to walk in, in the life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, So, um, which is essential for a successful Christian life. So I hope that this blessed you. Um, as always, we're available on Instagram if you want to reach out message us we love your messages i've been receiving messages and questions and people requesting topics that we would cover (laughs) which is just awesome because this helps us tremendously because we also will know what you're thinking Mm -hmm. those of you that are listening so it helps us when we can have a better idea of what you're thinking to to craft these episodes so that they're more beneficial to you and at the same time it helps us it gives me I, I got to dive into a lot of scripture that I, <laughs> you know, dive deep into stuff for this episode. So yeah, it blesses me <laughs> to to try to find answers. Yeah, or you know, bring stuff for the episode. Amen, man. I agree. So, well, we thank everyone for listening, and we will uh, see you at the next episode. We love you. <laughs>